Hi, guys, it's Dr. Sadaf, and I would love for you to like and share this podcast and make sure you leave me a review. I'd love those five stars. So please, when you send me a review, please make sure to put the five stars in and to share the episode with somebody that you know that could really use it. And I would absolutely appreciate it. Also, if you're looking to schedule an appointment with me, make sure you go to my email and put your name on the email list. You will be the first to know when I open up my office in spring of 2024. It's drsadaf.com. And last but definitely not the least, September 16th to the 23rd, 2024, I will be hosting a retreat with Dr. Basma Ferris in Morocco. You will be getting yoga and coaching and we'll be doing excursions and cooking and spa and hammam and all of that great stuff along with meditation. So make sure you don't miss out. Spots are limited. So go to the link in my bio in both Instagram and TikTok to make sure you register. Enjoy the show. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Flody, and this episode is everything you need to know about estrogen and estrogen in menopause and why that is so important for women. But before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I am not giving any type of medical advice. So if you have any questions about your health, please speak with your friendly neighborhood healthcare provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So I am super, super excited to have on with me today, Dr. Abram Blooming. Dr. Blooming, welcome. And please introduce yourself to the listeners and the viewers that are watching you. Sure, my name is Avram Blooming. Uh, I'm a medical oncologist as well as an internist. Uh, I practiced medical oncology for close to 50 years. I retired recently from active practice, and about 60% of my practice uh, was treating patients with breast cancer. And I have watched the field advance so that Breast cancer, which is still a frightening diagnosis, is no longer a death sentence among the great majority of women currently being treated. In fact, newly diagnosed breast cancer in this country carries a cure rate of over 90%, and in some studies, it's over 96%. I don't wish breast cancer on anybody, but it should not paralyze women from looking at the rest of their life. As a result of treating breast cancer and I used chemotherapy, I was responsible for inducing premature menopause in many of my patients. And uh, the women, after we completed treatment and they were doing very well, would complain to me about symptoms that they were having. And I listened because I'm a sympathetic person, but in the back of my mind, what I'm thinking is, aren't you pleased that you're cured of your breast cancer? Of course, nobody can guarantee that, but that is the most likely outcome. And yes, uh, you have some symptoms, but essentially deal with them and get on with the rest of your life. And then... At the age of 45, my wife developed breast cancer. Oh, my. And I treated her as well and induced premature menopause in her. And she developed symptoms that she never complained to me about. She had the hot flushes. She had insomnia. She had night sweats. She had arrhythmias. Uh, she had burning urination, frequent urinary tract infections. Uh, she had some anxiety, uh, but she's a very tough lady, and she never complained until she developed brain fog. And my wife, Martha, is a very literate person, 
and finding that when she was reading a book, she couldn't remember what she had read two pages before was intolerable. And I took a much deeper look at what women were being forced to go through. And I listened more attentively to the many women who were complaining to me. And I looked about the way we might, I investigated how these symptoms might be best treated. And the literature was rich in discussing how hormone replacement therapy, which some people now cause menopausal hormone therapy, is far and away the best treatment for all of the situations that women face, whether they have uh, iatrogenic doctor-induced menopause or natural menopause. And back in 1992, I started a study offering menopausal hormone therapy to successfully treated women who had primary breast cancer. Uh, I reported the results of that study every year for 14 years. The results were excellent and fit with the results of the 25 other studies I was able to find in the medical literature. And I've been writing about these results now for 30 years. Wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. So really ironic that your wife developed breast cancer and you'd been treating that your whole medical career. So that's that's really interesting. And I think, I guess, it gave you really a firsthand experience as to what somebody, especially since you know, you were living with your wife, that to what she was going through. And um, that's really interesting that that happened. I'm sorry to hear that your wife had breast cancer. How is she doing now? She's 80 years old and oh, she is God. terrific. That is fantastic. We recently got back from a trip to West Africa where we visited seven countries, wow. visited many remote villages. We like to travel like that. And she is the center of my life. It's fantastic. So I'd also like to get into, there's so much there, what you just said. And uh, I'd love to get into, you just had written an article right here um, that was published in the Menopause Journal in the December 2023 edition. And you write it, it's called Tis But a Scratch, a critical review of the Women's Health in Initiative, evidence associating menopausal hormone therapy with the risk of breast cancer. And you state in there that, really estrogen is not the problem. And the problem that they thought was even a problem, or even if it is a problem, it, it was a slight problem, but you're not even sure if that was a problem, was the estrogen progesterone arm. And now we use so many different other progesterones that that's really not even an issue. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Sure, the Women's Health Initiative is the single most expensive study, uh, medical study that's ever been done. And it's not likely that we will have another. Uh, and the reason it was set up is Bernadine Healy uh, was a cardiologist and the first female director of the National Institutes of Health. And in her position, she correctly pointed out that the overwhelming majority of medical studies were done on men, not on women. Uh, 80%, 85%. And there's a reason for it. Uh, first, most physicians over the years have been male, although that's rapidly changing. Second, doing studies on women runs the risk that the patient might be pregnant when you start the study, and you certainly don't want to interfere with a pregnancy. Uh, but in fact, the studies are done on male animals too, not just on male human beings. And they are extrapolated to women saying, well, these are the results of the studies in men. And since women are almost like men, they usually weigh a little less. We could probably extrapolate the results and apply the results to women as well. We now know that that's not valid. 
the Women's Health Initiative came out because Bernadine Healy said it's time we focused on women's health and did studies looking at women. One very simple example, and I told you Bernadine Healy was a cardiologist, is the idea that giving statins to people to decrease the risk of primary heart attacks was established in studies on men and extrapolated to women. We now know that as a primary preventive, it doesn't do anything for women. And yet many women are still on that drug. In any case, we were all very excited that the Women's Health Initiative was going to look at this. And what they were looking at primarily was heart disease. Heart disease kills seven times as many women in this country as does breast cancer. Uh, and yet women are much more frightened of breast cancer than they are of heart disease. And I might add parenthetically that when I say that, what women will usually say to me is sure, but old women die of heart disease and young women die of breast cancer. And since I know I'm going to die, I'd rather die when I'm old than when I'm young. Well, in point of fact, in every decade of a woman's life past age 40, her risk of dying of heart disease is greater than her risk of dying of breast cancer, and the difference increases with every decade. In any case, it was done to look at heart disease, uh, and the report came out in uh, July of 2002. And that famous press conference, and I might mention that it came out as a press conference, not as a published article. The published article came out a week later, so that after it made headlines around the world and women asked their doctors about the result, the doctors had no article to refer to for at least a week. And what they found is that there was an increased risk of heart disease among women who were randomized to take hormones compared to women who were randomized to a placebo. We now know that the median age that those women uh, were when they entered the study was 63. And the Women's Health Initiative now acknowledges that women who start hormones during their perimenopausal years uh, between 45 and 55 do very well and in fact have a significantly decreased risk of heart disease. But they reported it increases the risk of heart disease. They also said it increases the risk of stroke that has not been borne out with future analyses of the data. And they said it increases the risk of breast cancer. And that made headlines around the world, not the heart disease, not the stroke, the breast cancer. When you look at the data that they reported in July of 2002, you saw that there was no significant increased risk of breast cancer. And what they have found over time is estrogen alone has been shown to decrease the risk of breast cancer by a significant 23% and decrease the risk of death from breast cancer by a significant 40%. And so as you pointed out in your introduction, the Women's Health Initiative which has said that it increases the risk of breast cancer, has acknowledged that they no longer mean estrogen alone, but in the combination of estrogen and progesterone, they saw a small increased risk. In July of 2002, that was a not significant increased risk, but it made headlines nevertheless. Uh, and it's that fear that has persisted. And I and many other people have published uh, peer-reviewed articles, and as you pointed out, I, I wrote a book about this, saying that their analysis of their data, saying that it increased the risk of breast cancer if they took the combination, was an incorrect analysis. And let me just say at the beginning that for women 
who start hormone replacement therapy around the time of perimenopause or menopause, they acknowledge now and they acknowledged back in 2002, there was no increased risk of breast cancer. It was only older women who had the increased risk. But even there, the increased risk that they reported, which amounted to one new case of breast cancer for every thousand women taking the combination for a year, one for every thousand, with no associated increased risk of death from breast cancer. They've held on to that, and even that statement has been shown to be false. And in the article, I wrote it together with Howard Hodes, a professor of cardiology at the University of Southern California, and Robert Langer, who's a professor of epidemiology at the University of California in San Diego. Uh, and what we pointed out is they have ignored, they being the women's health investigators, have ignored all the criticisms leveled against them vis-a-vis -vis their publication. Now, they have walked back all the other fears, the heart disease, the stroke. Uh, they even said it had no effect on symptoms of menopause. They've walked all of that back. They've walked back that estrogen causes breast cancer and instead talk about estrogen is good in preventing breast cancer and preventing breast cancer death. But they have held on to the fact that they say the combination increases the risk of breast cancer. And that's not true. And the articles that we have published attacking that have been ignored. And so in December of 2023, we published the article, Tis But a Scratch, saying the way they have dealt with all the criticism is by dismissing the criticism, tis but a scratch. And it's not a scratch. It is a lethal wound for their results. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, all of what you were saying just reminds me of, you know, I was so I was in residency in 2002 when that article came about. And I remember at Grand Rounds, our attending telling us, you know, that um, we are no longer going to prescribe hormone therapy to women. You know, it's bad. It increases breast cancer and we no longer give it to women anymore. And so after that, Right. There's been a whole generation of OBGYNs, family practitioners, you know, other physicians that were never taught anything about menopause, never taught how to manage symptoms, how to treat women, how to give medication or anything at all. So many providers, even now, when you talk to women about their menopausal symptoms and whether or not they want to take hormones, they say, oh, no, 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 it, it increases risk of breast cancer. I mean, that idea has persisted for so long, it just won't die. And I think it's because, right, the idea is so many physicians, even physicians now, when you go to them, you ask them about hormones, or you ask them that you want hormones, they won't give you hormones because they don't feel comfortable. They don't feel comfortable uh, giving hormones to women that are very good candidates, and definitely not to anyone that may have any type of, you know, suspected risk factor. But I mean, definitely, we don't give hormones to people with, you know, contraindications. But what I'm saying is that physicians in general do not feel comfortable because of that study, right? Because we were never taught. And so now this, you know, all this generation of physicians don't know how to treat menopausal women and don't know how to treat the hot flashes, the vaginal dryness, all of those things. And we have patients that are very scared about hormones. Um, I'm also curious to know if you would consider saying that hormone therapy is almost preventative. Uh, the short answer to your question is yes, I believe it is. Uh, first, there are major symptoms associated with menopause. Uh, and the way many of us were taught or not, not, not really taught seriously <laughs> about menopause, is well, it lasts one or two years, they're mild symptoms, and uh, 
deal with it. Be a yeah. woman and get past it. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the median duration of symptoms is 7.4 years. Uh, the symptoms are, uh, in 85% of women, significant enough to interfere with the quality of their life. Uh, something on the order of a third of female British healthcare workers are retiring early from medical treatment because of the symptoms of menopause. Mm. Uh, and it's not just hot flushes and night sweats and insomnia. There are 32 different symptoms that are listed that would take the rest of this period if we just went through them. Uh, uh, I mentioned briefly palpitations. Many cardiologists aren't aware that palpitations uh, are a symptom of menopause. And the person who made them aware is Oprah Winfrey, who went to five doctors and said, I'm having palpitations. And they assured her her heart was fine. And she said, and nobody wants to miss a diagnosis with me. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. And it turns out it's a significant symptom of menopause, which all, all, almost always responds to treatment. And hormones, and especially estrogen, is the single best treatment for all of the symptoms of menopause. Single best. I mean, 70% dramatic or complete prevention or remission of symptoms. Uh, and it's just worth mentioning that the Women's Health Initiative in 2003, a year after they came out with their blockbuster misinformation, said hormone replacement therapy has no effect on general quality of life. Mm. And they published that in either the New England Journal or the Journal of the American Medical Association. And the first question my wife asked is, what planet are they living on? <laughs> and when you read their article, they make it very clear that they knew that symptomatic women who were randomized to placebo would know within a week whether they were taking hormones. And so they intentionally prevented symptomatic women from joining the study. Wow. And so if you read their article carefully, what it really says is, and so when we looked at these women who had no symptoms, we found that giving them estrogen had no effect <laughs> on the symptoms they didn't have. Right. But the New York Times headlined that, not only do hormones do all these bad things, they don't even do the things we thought they would do. We um, know that, uh, and there are numerous articles that support this, uh, that about somewhere on the order of 30 to 40,000 women who develop hip fracture as they age uh, will die within the first year uh, mm. following the hip fracture. Wow. Uh, that's close to as many women who die each year of breast cancer. And the single best treatment to prevent the osteoporosis associated with eventual hip fracture is estrogen. Mm -hmm. And it works better than any other treatment we know of. We know, I mentioned how serious heart disease is, that Hormone replacement therapy, again, specifically estrogen, will decrease the risk of serious heart disease by 40 to 50%. There are numerous articles suggesting that hormone replacement therapy will also, also decrease the risk of dementia or Alzheimer's disease. We know that it decreases the risk of diabetes mellitus and decreases the risk of colon cancer as well. As you can tell, all you have to do is ask me a very simple five-word question, and I can go on and on for as long as you like, because it is such a disservice that was and is being done to women around the world. 
Absolutely. And you also mentioned the brain fog, right? There's so many estrogen receptors in the brain. And so we know that when we give estrogen, it makes such a difference to women in terms of just their functioning, right? So many women, I have brain fog, right? So I, I know that for a fact that when I, when I go on estrogen, it's going to make such a huge difference. Right now I'm on oral contraceptive pills, which I don't know if that's better or worse than going on estrogen. What would you say? One of the things I'm very careful about is I don't give specific advice as you were careful about in the very beginning of this program. Uh, I think that's something that has to be discussed with a woman's individual doctor. Uh, Generally, hormone replacement therapy generally is associated with lower doses of estrogen than contraceptive pills are. And you know this better than I being an OBGYN doctor. Right, right, right. So also there are some questions about whether or not, you know, you can give estrogen um, and if it decreases heart disease. And you said that it absolutely does decrease heart disease in women when given during the perimenopausal period. Um, You know, there are also people that suggest when women go through menopause about plant sterols and things of that nature versus statins. Do you know of if that makes a difference or is estrogen what typically would be the way to go in terms of prevention of coronary artery disease after menopause? When we talk about estrogen, whether it comes from a yam or comes from horse urine, uh, it's estrogen. And estrogen decreases the risk of coronary artery disease as long as it started before a woman has developed atherosclerosis, as we all do when we age. And I mentioned that one of my co-authors on the paper in December Howard Hodes is a professor of cardiology and uh, on the board of the American College of Cardiology. Uh, These are not unknowns. As you mentioned, uh, menopause up until very recently has not been a subject that's been taught in medical school. And in fact, less than 25% of OBGYN residents in this country get more than a few hours in their entire medical education. If that. Ed- education devoted to uh, menopause, correct. Yes. That's yes. a disgrace. It's, it's awful. Actually, I was uh, a few years ago, I was part of an academic institution and they didn't have any lectures on menopause, none none at all. So, you know, it's really, it really is a disservice to women all over the world when their practitioners cannot help them. Um, You know, I'm really curious what you think about the agenda of the WHI. There was another um, physician that I was watching and he was curious himself about, you know, why a study, we never really hear about studies on, you know, having a press conference and why um, they, said those the results of the study even before the study was published and even before physicians even had it in their hands um why might that have been the case the first answer is i don't know yeah Uh, the people that i know who were part of the study who were investigators are not nefarious people who set out to harm sure having said that Uh, The principal investigator of the Women's Health Initiative was a cardiologist named Jacques Rousseau. And uh, Dr. Rousseau published an article six years before the Women's Health Initiative press conference in 2002. And what he wrote in that article and what we quote in the book is uh, he wrote, uh, the estrogen bandwagon is out of control. And it is time we put a stop to that bandwagon. And in press conferences associated with the WHI, he said, we walked into this thinking we would find that estrogen is good. Imagine our surprise that we found that estrogen is not good. That's that's dishonest. That wasn't a surprise to him. 
Uh, and as I mentioned, what the Women's Health Initiative investigators, the overwhelming majority of them, and there were, I think, 44 from major reputable institutions, what they said is, well, what we showed is that there is a 10-year window of opportunity between a woman's last menstrual period and the time she could start hormones. And if she starts them, as do almost 100% of women who are going through natural menopause, if she starts the treatment within those 10 years, then it's good. We're, we have no objection to that. So they're talking about a very small minority of women. I I challenge some of their results even there, but they said, and we acknowledge that we have uncovered this 10-year window of opportunity, and that is our gift to the women of the world. Well, some of us knew something about that before, but in fairness to them, I think they stressed that so that most people now recognize that there is a 10-year period of time after a woman's last period where, although she should be monitored, she shouldn't approach this with fear. By and large, it's a good thing to do. And among the studies we quote in the book and in our articles is that uh, it's been estimated that women who take hormones will live between three and four years longer than mm -hmm. women who don't. It's interesting that you say that. So, uh, you know, oftentimes we, when we do learn about hormones, we're taught that to give it for the least amount of time that you can for the lowest amount of dosage that it takes to get rid of a woman's hot flashes. And so that a lot of times physicians or whoever ends up putting the patient on hormones will go with the lowest dose. Uh, we are also taught that, you know, not to keep women on for too long and, you know, try to taper them off perhaps in their 60s. But at a recent conference that I went to for with the Menopause Society, they say it's really a shared decision making. And that, you know, depending on the patient and what their needs are, that they can even go longer. Do you have any? I, I have very strong opinions about that. And there are at least three questions in that question. The first is, there are no scientific data supporting take the lowest dose for the shortest period of time. None. That should not be present. It just shouldn't be used. For example, I told you that uh, estrogen is the single best preventive medicine to avoid hip fracture from osteoporosis. What is interesting is when a woman stops taking estrogen, her bones age at an accelerated rate, so that although taking estrogen keeps her bones pliable and resistant to fracture, once she stops, within six years of stopping, her bones are as fragile and thinner than uh, they're the same they would have been had she never taken hormones, so that bone fracture will come back. There is a suggestion that that's true for the benefit in the brain and the heart. That hasn't been studied as closely. But when we give thyroid medicine to women, which does much fewer good things than does estrogen, the woman takes thyroid for the rest of her life. And so that statement is sort of a hedge statement. Well, I'm not sure. So, okay, you can take it, but if you must take it, take the lowest dose for the shortest period of time. That is bad advice that should not be used. The second thing you mentioned, and you've said this several times, and it's just a pet project of mine, whoever called a hot flash a hot flash was probably a man. Because a flash, as you know from photography, is over like that. What happens to a woman is she starts getting this feeling deep in her body. Sometimes she describes it as the back of her brain, sometimes the back of her throat. And over the next five to 15 minutes, it spreads so that her face gets flushed and she starts sweating from her scalp. And it takes a long time 
10, 15 minutes for it to clear. And so calling it a hot flush is probably more accurate. A hot flash can be dismissed, and this isn't just a hot flash. Finally, uh, the recent past president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology uh, is Eric Weiner, who was in charge of breast cancer research at Harvard. And within the last year and a half, he moved to Yale, where he runs the cancer program. Uh, And Eric was born a hemophiliac. Uh, And in the course of his treatment as a young boy, uh, he was given factor eight, which induced AIDS. Uh, And so here's a young man with AIDS and hemophilia, and he's very aware of the disconnect between physicians who don't really share decisions with patients and the patient. And his presidential address at the end of his uh, service last year was called Partnering with Patients. It's online and it's so worth looking at and listening to, talking about the joint decision-making that will be the best kind of practiced medicine. And when a woman now asks a physician for hormones and is told, I'm not going to talk about it. And if you want to do that, you'll have to find a different physician. And I'm not going to give you something that will kill you. That is exactly the opposite of the way that situation should be handled. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I totally agree. Yes. And so that was actually the focus of the, one of the focuses of the menopause society conference. And that was about the shared decision-making and, you know, when, when do clinicians need to take patients off? And that was a case by case um, scenario and that you can't just say that as a blanket statement. I'd love to know more about your, your book that you wrote and it's called Estrogen Matters. Um, How many, over how many years did you write the book and uh, what was the impetus to write it? Well, first, I have to say that the book was a joint project. I wrote it with Carol Tavris. Carol is a PhD social psychologist who is terrific. I told Carol I would happily have her as the senior author of the book. Uh, Carol uh, took what I wrote, which uh, is data rich. Uh, and very informative, and and therefore often boring, and made it into something that will make you smile, sometimes even laugh. Carol is very witty, very smart. She is a compulsive data analyst. The book that she wrote just prior to the book she wrote with me Uh, is uh, called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, which gives you a sense of how Carol sees the world. And working with her and writing with her is a undiminished joy. Uh, There were several other books we were talking about writing, and Carol kept saying to me, you have to write this book. This can't be a chapter in another book. This has to be a book on its own right, in its own right. And so in July uh, of 2020, September 1st, uh, 2018, uh, this book that we wrote over about a year uh, was published. Uh, And it is still an incredibly valuable resource. We wrote the book both for patients and for physicians. Although it's got Carol's lighthearted approach, it is data rich and it is heavily referenced. There are 55 pages of references. We wrote the book the way we'd write a a medical paper for a peer-reviewed journal. So when you bring the book into your doctor's office, uh, your doctor can't say, why should I listen to this doctor whom I don't even know? 
The answer is don't listen to this doctor, but please read the book and look at the references and give me reasons why what they are saying is not valid. Sure. And they won't be able to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really excited. I haven't started it yet, but I'm really excited to read it. And for people that like me that haven't started it yet, what would you say are the main takeaways from that book? <laughs> well, uh, the main takeaways are uh, estrogen is the single best treatment for menopausal symptoms, which are many, which will affect 85% uh, of women and which will last seven and a half years without them. Uh, estrogen is the single best treatment to prevent osteoporotic hip fractures. Estrogen is better than statins in preventing heart disease, which will kill seven times as many women as breast cancer will. Estrogen is the only treatment we have to date which can help prevent Alzheimer's disease. Now, there's no prospective randomized study on that, so I can't give you hard and fast statistics. But the literature is rich in studies strongly suggestive of that. And Roberta Diaz-Brinton at the University of Arizona has done numerous laboratory and animal studies showing that estrogen is a positive force in uh, expanding brain tissue, healthy brain tissue, expanding connections between the neurons in the brain and helping to prevent the brain fog you spoke about. Uh, and that's, that's all in the book. In addition, I mentioned it decreases the risk of cancer of the colon. It decreases the risk of diabetes mellitus. And these are significant decreases and it prolongs survival. Um, why would you not be interested in looking at that? I, I have to add because of how positive I am about it. Carol insists that I say this in every podcast. I am not now, nor have I ever been uh, paid by any drug company or any commercial organization to bring these data to the attention of people. This is out of a deep commitment to improving our knowledge base and therefore improving the care we give to women. Thank you for saying that, actually, because I'm sure there's people perhaps that listen and, you know, are thinking that, oh, he must be funded or sponsored by some hormone company. And I think it's very important to know that, you know, you don't have any affiliations. You're not sponsored by anyone. This is something from the years of research that you've done on your own and through a commitment that you have to the patient community. So, you know, I thank you for your work because that's very important. And I think it's really important for people to understand that as well. It's due to your own deep commitment and not, you know, not powered by money or anything like that. So that's, that's very important. Um, so what if a patient is sitting here listening to this, and they're thinking, wow, he is amazing. Where can I follow him? Where? How can I get in touch with him? Um, how can people get in touch with you? And how can they follow you? Well, it's interesting you ask first to follow. Uh, I'm really good in medicine. I'm very unsophisticated in media. And so about five months ago, my daughter, Ariel, said to me, you know, you really need an Instagram account. Uh, fine. She said, well, I'll set it up for you. And she did. Uh, and it's at Instagram.com slash estrogen underscore matters. Uh, and she has posted hard data on there and has developed an incredible following so that as of this morning, I think we now have 30,000 followers over the, over the last five months. It is amazing. Yeah. In addition, the book has a website. It's www.estrogenmatters.com uh, where you can see the people who have recommended the book. 
these people include uh, Dr. Vincent DeVita. Uh, Dr. DeVita was the director of the National Cancer Institute. He was the uh, chief of oncology at Sloan Kettering Memorial Medical Center in New York. For the last 20 years, uh, Vince ran the Yale Cancer Program. Uh, uh, Baron Leslie Turnberg. Baron Turnberg is a former president of the uh, British Medical Society, uh, the Royal Society of Medicine. Uh, Michael Baum, who's a British breast surgeon and one of the seven leading investigators uh, of breast cancer in human beings. Uh, these are significant opinion leaders who don't take any of this lightly. And if you look at the book, you'll see that their endorsements are, are in the book. Uh, Phyllis Greenberger, who's a women's advocate in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's, it's something I'm very grateful for and, in fact, proud of, that this is not being treated lightly, nor should it be. Absolutely. I think that's fantastic. I do have one quick question before sure. we sign off. I have, so I was actually speaking to a dermatologist today and she was asking me, she has a history of um, deep vein thrombosis, so a blood clot. And she, and I told her, okay, so if you can't take estrogen, right? I know that that's one of the contraindications, you know, you can at least do vaginal estrogen that's local. And she said to me that her hematologist had told her that she cannot, that she's building a reservoir of estrogen. And because she had a deep vein thrombosis, that she cannot take local vaginal estrogen. And I told her that did not make sense to me. And I'm wondering if that makes sense to you. Again, we're talking generally. I don't know this dermatologist, obviously. Uh, but the short, direct answer is, uh, I think that's wrong. I see no reason why she couldn't take vaginal estrogen. Right, because it acts locally, not systemically, in the very small doses. Anyways, but I think that, you know, I, I think as with anything, patients need to go and speak with their own providers. But the problem is, as you and I just stated, is that providers are not familiar with estrogen. They're not familiar with contraindications and which patient is a good candidate, which one is not a good candidate. And so they'll say those blanket statements and they'll just tell the patients that, no, you know what, you need to, like you said, just, you know, woman up and uh, deal with the consequences of going through menopause and you can't get hormone therapy and you can't get to even local vaginal estrogen. So I think it's really important for physicians to read up on what are the indications, what are the contraindications and make sure that we don't do a disservice to our patients and actually give them the care that they need. That's correct. Your physician owes you familiarity with current data before giving you advice that can affect your life. Uh, before I got involved with estrogen, because I was interested in breast cancer, uh, I was also involved in the primary treatment of breast cancer, which involved um, mastectomy, either radical mastectomy or modified radical mastectomy. And I was working with the professor of radiotherapy at Harvard. Uh, I was in Boston and uh, uh, Sam Hellman, uh, is his name. And Sam was one of about 10 people around the world who were developing lumpectomy and radiotherapy as treatment for primary breast cancer. And I came out to California from Boston, and I started talking about that here. And I was told uh, that that'll never work in Los Angeles because uh, I want to make a living. I'm a practicing physician and surgeons will be our, my largest referral base. And mastectomy is bread and butter surgery. And if you talk about mastectomy not being any better than lumpectomy, you won't get referrals. Well, I didn't follow that advice. I kept on talking. And I remember a surgeon saying to me, I did my first lumpectomy. Went to see the patient after surgery. Her gratitude overwhelmed me. 
I will never do a mastectomy unless there is no other option again. Imagine what physicians would be greeted with if they lifted this ignorant, ignorant ban on estrogen. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I know that there are so many women right now suffering in menopause because they just cannot find a provider that will give them the estrogen that they need so that they can go on with their lives and not be, you know, crippled by the symptoms of menopause. I think it's just awful. And it's it's really a disservice that we do to our patients. So I'm so grateful that you're here and that you wrote this book and that you are speaking up and about it to everyone because I think it's so important. And I think your article was amazing and that you brought it to the forefront because so many physicians are scared. They're scared. They, you know, of course, we, you know, are, we want to do no harm, but in, in trying to not do any harm, right? Because in our minds, we're thinking that if we give estrogen, we're going to do harm. We're actually doing harm by not giving the estrogen that women need. So it's really important for us to learn and be aware. Over 20 years ago, Melody Kobley, who is an academician physician in Chicago, wrote an article and she wrote, we have to give up the medical mantra, primam non nacer, which is first do no harm. And we have to exchange it for first understand, mm. then advise. Nice. Profound. And that was... 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, for everyone that's been listening and watching, please follow uh, Dr. Blooming at Estrogen Matters. It's such important information for you as a clinician and also for you as a patient. So thank you so much for all that you do for women all over the world. And well, I am done here and it's been real and really intimate. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends. And thanks for listening. Bye.